Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Squid and Ultimate Leafs Fan Show, brought to you by the Hockey News. With over 2 million dedicated readers, the Hockey News is the authoritative source of hockey and the number one hockey publication in North America. With an ever-growing podcast network and video database on top of an already established print and digital brand, the Hockey News is there to cover all the major hockey stories from around the world. Visit THN.com deal to get the best value on a subscription to the Hockey News. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan, and joining me as always, my co-host, Ricky Squid Vive. Squid, how you keeping, my man? Oh, pretty darn good. Just loving the, uh, the, the weather the last three or four days out on the golf course and uh, just chilling, watching hockey. I get home and then I start watching hockey as soon as I get home. And, well, one night was a little bit long. It was with the five overtimes, which was kind of crazy. But, uh, yes, yes. no, it's good. It's good. It's, it's fun to watch. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, some of the games have been pretty exciting. Well, like most of the fans, uh, you know, around, we've obviously arrived disappointed with the early exit from the playoffs. And as everyone will offer some insights in today, what's in store for the Buds going forward? We might be a little late because the team has been broken down, rebuilt, rejigged, and everything. And that was all on social media before the first player actually entered the dressing room after the end of game five. So we're sorry for our tardiness coming a few days after that exit. We're also excited to bring the second part of our interview with legendary Leaf defenseman Boris Salmi. And I think the listeners today, Squid, are really in for a treat with insights playing in Toronto. The thing that really gets me in this interview with Boris is how humble, not only how humble he is, but just how quickly this guy adapted and got it playing in North America. This is a new country, you know, new eating habits, new language, new rituals for a hockey team, all these type of things. And he just got it and fit in so quickly yeah that was uh that was remarkable actually that he was able to come over uh, you know and be one of the first guys you know to come over from europe and he adjusted so quickly that it was unbelievable and uh i think that tells you just how good he was and how good he was at reading the game and, and knowing what he had to do because it's a big adjustment going from the Olympic size ice to NHL size ice to of begin with. But he figured it out. He figured it out really quick. And the other thing, too, is remember, this guy came from northern Sweden. So it's not like he's from Stockholm where he was up to date on what was going on in a national hockey league. This guy came from a one horse town where he barely had a TV to watch a game. So yeah. anyway, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that. You know, that what people just want to stay tuned and listen to that. I mean, that, that's just worth it. And he's just a remarkable uh, athlete and just a great guy on top of all of that. So, I mean, let's get to it. The elephant in the room is obviously, let's get it out of the way. You take it away. What happened to the Leafs? <laughs> well, I mean, again, they were chasing the game in game five. And, you know, what happens when they're, you're chasing the game, especially with the Leafs and with most teams in the league, is you're going to make mistakes. And that second goal was a killer. It was, it was a bad change. And Fred, Freddie let in a, a pretty weak one on that one. So, you know, I mean, we can throw blame all over the place if we really want to. But the bottom line is, is it was a, it was a horrible change. And uh, that left uh, Marinson kind of in no man's land. And then, you know, the weak goal from – you know, just above the goal line. And so, you know, it's one of those things. Now you're down to nothing. And now you got to, you really got to try and pour it on. And they couldn't really get it done. Well, I mean, the obvious lack of scoring, particularly the secondary side, is, is a puzzling aspect of the game that's going to be, again, addressed in the offseason, no question. But at some point, I mean, the players have to be counted. Yeah, I mean, there's just no other way to explain it than that. I mean, you've got to look in the mirror, guys, at some point and, and give yourself a shake. Well, I heard Dubas's interview, and he's talking about how he's taking the blame and all this, and it's like, well, hold on a minute. You know, you assembled this group that are, are extremely talented and they're fast and they're good players, and they didn't get the job done. So I think every single one of those guys has to look in the mirror and just say, you know, did I do everything I could have done 
to win this hockey series or, or this hockey game. And uh, the players, I mean, they have to take accountability for, for what happened. And uh, the GM as well. I mean, everybody does. But now everybody has to look at everything and say, where do we go from here? What do we need to do to get better? What do we need to do to get a, put together a team that can get by a round in the playoffs? What's astonishing to me is how you can be motivated. Now, Mitch Martyr, I mean, he could get away with this maybe as a rooker and being a happy-go-lucky kid. But after four years, he should maybe choose his words a little carefully, saying he wasn't prepared and engaged in game one against Columbus. Now, okay, I'm a 66-year-old stiff playing beer league hockey. I haven't played for five months, and I'm playing Monday night for the first time in that time period. I can barely sleep. I'm all excited to play. And our games are in reverse sometimes when you watch them. How the hell can you be a National Hockey League player going to playoffs and not be jumping over the boards to get out there and be excited to play and not be engaged? I, I mean, that was just absolutely startling when I heard that. I mean, I, that, that blows my mind. I mean, you're getting paid all that money to go out and be prepared and be ready when the puck drops and be engaged and, and, and do the best you can. I don't get it. You're, you're a professional. You've got to approach it as a professional and go out there and, and you got to be ready and you got to be, you got to be excited and you got to be engaged and, and get into it. And uh, to hear those comments, I was shocked as well, Mike. Boy, I know I'm with you. I mean, I mean, the D is obviously a glaring issue that's going to be a key focus in the off season as well, assuming Barry and CeCe are gone after watching Seth Jones in that series, uh, man, oh man, I, I mean, that, that, that's clearly lacking. Unfortunately, those players don't come along too often. They're very rare. Uh, so obviously the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to have to do something. There's going to be some big changes. So I would say, as I said a couple of weeks before in one of the, on our podcast, you know, one of the big names is they're going to have to move something. And, you know, instead of targeting specific players that could be trading ships, why don't we start with the players that are actually going to be here next year that we think are surefire guys to probably be here. Now, Johnny Tavares, because his contract is unmovable, he's got to be here. He's not going anywhere. Austin Matthews, you just don't give up big centers. You can't win a Stanley Cup without one. He's not going anywhere. Nick Robertson, he's cheap. He's got ability. They're invested in him because they let him play in the play-in. Uh, this kid they signed out of uh, Russia, this uh, Barbanov, Alexander, He's probably going to get a shot to play, and he's also cheap. And on the back end, I would say Morgan Raleigh and Jack, Jake Muzzin are the two guys that are not going anywhere. But the rest, including Freddie, I would say are all up for grabs. Are you in agreement with that? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I would have to think right now that if you look at their team, I, I don't think anybody is untouchable. You know, yeah. on, well, some of them are because they have no trades or no yes, means. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. That aside. Um, yeah, but I think you got to look at everything. And I actually, I thought Justin Hall played pretty good myself. And I, I would put him in there as a guy mm -hmm. who's yep. cheap yep. and can get the job done. But, you know, he has to play with someone pretty good as well. And, uh, you know, they, they're like I heard uh, Kyle Dubas talking about we have Sandine, we have uh, the other Swedish. Lilligran. 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 But are they ready? Like, are they ready? And are they, I mean, it seems like they're the same type of defenseman that they went and got in CC and Barry. And they're still young. You know, are they ready to compete and win at the National Hockey League level? I'm not so sure that that, that would be the case. Well, I mean, again, the way everybody's talking now, you know, it's almost like, you know, you want to give it, I'll just throw in his name out there. You give up a $10 million salary and you go and hire four Kyle Cliffords because that's what wins for you. you know? I mean, what happened in the days when you signed the best possible player available, but the way the game has changed, you know, the way that's the, it's leaning that way. And that's what they killed the Leafs. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, I mean, they've got to figure out a way they're, 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 they're one and two lines are pretty much set. And, and those are two really good lines that can score goals. They got to find a way to have a, a real solid third checking line that can shut other teams' best lines down. And then they got to put together a real good fourth energy line. 
but but those guys got to play a little more too. That's the thing. I mean, the National Hockey League now is a four line game. It's it's not uh, a two or a three line game uh, now. I mean, it's played so fast, it's played so quick that it's very very difficult to play three lines most of the night. Have your fourth line play three minutes and expect them to go out and do anything. So, I mean, in our day, yes, it was. You played three lines, and the fourth line might get, you know, two or three minutes, and that's just the way it was. The game has changed. It's different now. It's a four-line game, and if you've got four good lines, uh, especially a good third-line checking line, then I think your your depth is better. Get two scoring lines, yeah. Some nights one might get shut down, the other one comes up big. Your, your third line might – if they shut down the other team's top line and you get something out of your fourth line, then, you know, you're, you're going to win hockey games. Well, there's about a total of six players looks like they're up for a couple of restricted free agents in Makayev and uh, Dermott and a couple of uh, unrestricted free agents with Spezza, Clifford, even Malgin you could throw in there. Um, you know, with all these guys out there, you know, it frees up about 15 million bucks for him to spend, but the players have to be replaced. So, there's going to be some yeah. wrangling and there's going to have to be some trading. And he suggested that they have some moves in mind. And you know, this, he's just not waking up this morning and looking at his salary cap situation, thinking I do have an issue moving forward. So I'm just saying to folks that no, look, if Wayne Gretzky can be this, traded, this is, guys, anybody can be traded. So be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. I mean, the day that he got traded, that meant that just said, okay, anybody in the national hockey league can be traded, but, I mean, you know that Kyle Dubas has been thinking about this and he's got probably, I would guess probably 50 pages of writing of possible, you know, trades or moves or, or whatever it might be. It's not like he, he's all of a sudden woken up and say, okay, I got to do this or I got to do that. He's been thinking about this for quite some time, probably throughout the entire uh uh, shut down and even before that so you know that they'll get something done and and hopefully the right moves that'll make this team a little bit better a little bit grittier uh, a little bit able to I don't know kind of able to close things when, when they need to well, you know, the, the rumors are already starting. I mean, uh, disgruntled goalie and Matt Murray in Pittsburgh, the rumor out there from Mr. Kiprios is back on the air. We'll give him a little shout out there. It's, it's always suggesting that he's hearing that it's Matt Murray for Frederick Anderson. So let all the stories and rumors and talks and all that all start shaking out, but we're going to watch with real interest here as we move forward. So the one thing they got through yesterday was, which they always hate doing at this time of the year, is the exit meetings. Thought I'd take a little different twist on this and say you went through a few exit meetings in your time as a hockey player. Just walk the listeners through what actually that entails. Walking in the room, who's in the room with you, who talks, and what actually do they say to you? Like, give me a good story and give us a bad one. Well, I mean, usually, you know, you've got your general manager, you've got your coach, I'm sure nowadays probably uh, the president like Brendan Shanahan would probably be involved as well. And I think what they do is go over what the player did during the season, how he played in the playoffs, uh, what he needs to do better, what he, you know, what he can improve on, uh, that sort of thing. And, and, you know, we need you to be in better shape come training camp like that. You know, all that stuff is all discussed. And, uh, you know, but, you know, I, I remember one time uh, I was sitting there with uh, Dan Maloney and uh, Mike Nickluck, who were the coach and assistant coach. Uh, I don't believe Jerry McNamara was there. He was his general manager. Yeah. And uh, I walked in, and uh, that was after the 54-goal season. And uh, Mike said, how you, how you doing? And I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good. And he goes, okay, good. We're all good then. Get out of here. He said, you had a great year. Just see if you can repeat it next year. And that was all he said. Like, okay, we're good if you're good. So get out of here. Next guy, send in the next guy. And uh, I thought that was 
quite funny, but at the same time, it, what else are they going to say to me? I mean, you know, you just come off a 54 goal season and, uh, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot they could have said. I mean, uh, I'm sure other guys had things said to them, <laughs> probably more than likely. I know Billy Derlego, they told him that he needed to work harder over the summer and get in better condition and, uh, you know, things like that. So uh, everybody's kind of told a little bit different stuff. and and But most of the time it's, okay, here's what we need you to work on this summer. We need you to get stronger, lower body, upper body. Uh, we need you to work on your skating or whatever the case might be. But there's always something that they tell you that you got to get better at. Now, do you? Uh, I was I, I was surprised because they said, "Just get out of here. You're fine." <laughs> I'm going. Well, there, there must be something I can get better at. Well, what about what about did you ever? Well, how about a bad one? Now, you must have had a couple with maybe Keenan. Did you? Did you ever get one with Keenan? No, I never did. I got traded before traded uh, during that season. So yeah, he sent you so, the message halfway through the year. Then he went and traded you right after. Yeah. Yeah, and so I never had an exit meeting in Buffalo. I had a couple. Uh, they, they were okay. I mean, but there was things that they said, like I needed to be better in certain areas. Uh, that was near the end of my career. Injuries were piling up. But at the same time, they said, you know, we need you to be better. We need you to be better in, in certain areas. And, yeah, they, they tell you that regardless of, of how good you are, what you've done in the past. So just take a little one step further. What about a contract year coming up? Did you ever find that there's maybe a couple shots in there that you thought were just not warranted to maybe to just to keep you down a little bit while you were negotiating and you would have to go to your agent, right? Would you go to your agent then right away and tell him what was said and have him then approach the GM like to cut this off at the pass? No, um, nothing was ever said to me in those meetings about salary or, or contract coming up. But I do remember that after the, my first contract and Harold publicly said that he's not going to get another dime. Uh, he'd only be a mediocre player in a 16 league, you know, and I'm like, I was shocked, but uh, I, no, I, I never. Uh, and then of course, Bob Pulford, you know, I was making 300 at the time and scored uh, 43 goals that year. And he offered me 260, 265, 265, <laughs> a $40,000 pay cut. Nothing was said in, in the exit meeting, but that was what he offered me. And uh, then we got an arbitration date set. He's, he told Bill Waters that if I went to arbitration, he'd be trading me. And Three days later, I had a new contract and I got a raise. So, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of one of those weird things that happens. But uh, but I've never had anybody discuss my contracts in exit meetings. Now, um, have the did you did the players? You guys obviously now obviously after the exit meetings, I think that's kind of uh, usually year end uh, exit party day also for the players, where they usually go to some watering hole and, and does do some of the guys share their stories with the other guys and have a few laughs over it oh yeah yeah it was it was pretty comical it was uh actually it was probably a party week not a party day <laughs> back then anyway and uh yeah the guys would always share what 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 they were told and you know some guys would just laugh it off other guys would be concerned and you know worried and guys would come up and say hey listen you know don't worry about it just work on what they told you to work on and come to camp ready to play and you'll be fine. But, you know, uh, they got to tell you something and whatever it is, don't worry about it. Just, you know, be ready. Now, can you recall one of the so, funnier stories, one of the funnier things guys were told, maybe a, a stupid thing or something like that? Uh, no, I think the only one I can remember was uh, – Oh, gosh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He played for us. He's a tough guy. Uh, oh, his name has escaped me. Uh, but anyway, he was like a fourth-line guy. He didn't play much, but tough guy. And he didn't last long in the National Hockey League. But uh, Paul Higgins. <laughs> Paul Higgins. That's who it was. And that year, he came to training camp, and he didn't have his skates. 
And they, they said, well, where the hell are your skates? He said, I left them at the cottage. <laughs> Let's go. Like, come on. Like, how do you leave your skates at the cottage when you're coming to training camp? So I remember we were out and, uh, and uh, he was told by in no uncertain terms, you come to camp next year, you better have your damn skates with you. <laughs> so that was probably one of the best ones. But, I mean, imagine a guy coming to training camp and saying, I forgot my skates at the cottage. Come on. Like, I mean, that is just ridiculous. That's pretty funny, actually. But that's the kid that played oh, at oh. Henry Carr High School. And he went yeah, yeah. up to be the new tough guy to, with the Leafs. Yeah. Well, Jerry brought him in for that reason and uh, never really panned out. I mean, you know, Higgy was a good kid, but he wasn't a very good player. And uh, But he was tough as nails. And, no question. Uh, you know, but – but I mean, you play two two and a half minutes a game. What what are you supposed to do with two and a half minutes? I mean, well, even the two and know, a half minutes, you get you get you get in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> you still need your skates, and that's two and a half minutes. So, all right, yeah. we're we're, we, we're going to monitor all these things very closely. And you know, at the end of the day, everything that we've got to offer, Mister Dubis, he's going to have his own agenda, as we know. And the minute he starts listening to us, you know that's the minute he's going to be joining us on the podcast, and it'll be called Squid Doobie and the Ultimate Leafs Fan. Well, that's got a real nice <laughs> ring to it, but I'm sure that's not what we're going to be seeing in the future. So I'm sure he will have some plan in place, and uh, I do have confidence that the Leafs are going to make some good moves in the offseason. So let's just uh, sit back now, folks, and uh, maybe a parting shot, Rick, before we go, before we bring Bory onto the scene. Well... I think he hit the nail on the head with Kyle. I mean, he, he's a smart guy and he's not where he is by chance. He's done a great job in junior hockey and American hockey. League. He's got some things lined up. He's going to be working the phones and, and more than likely, uh, I have confidence that he'll do a good job and make some moves and put, put some good things together. That's fantastic. Well, guys, we're going to be watching. We'll definitely be talking about it as we move forward. Let's get to the second part of our terrific interview with Leaf legend Borea Salmi. Oh, yeah. Enjoy it, guys. Borea, just picking up from there now, that, I mean, you, you go from Buffalo, you go to Philadelphia, and you play the, you, know, you fight the toughest guy in the league. Going through the rest of the league, well, let's, let's just speed the question up a little bit here. Your brother in 1972 played a game against Team Canada. Yep. And he had a little run-in with a guy by the name of Phil Esposito. Remember the – were you at that game, by the way? Well, I played that game. You pl oh, you played in it too. And yeah. he uh, – okay, so he um, had a little problem with Phil. Now, did any of the players say anything to you when you entered the league and were playing? Did they give you any shots about your brother? No. Uh, no, no, because it, I, I think, like, you know – Phil, he, he got a little, uh, I don't know why he got so upset, but, but I think the big, they had, they had a, I think, exhibition game in Gothenburg before another uh, world tournament that Espo went to. Uh, and that's one of, there was a lot, a lot of, not fighting, but it was all high sticking. And, and my brother was really a tough guy. So he, he never backed off. And, you know, Canadians, when they come to Europe, they, they always think we're strongest and toughest, right? And, and they think they can, you know, you she can switch it. But then when, when you hit, hit them back, then they said, what the hell was going on? You know, they're not supposed to hit us back. And that's what he did. And that's why Espo that didn't like Sig. So now did any of the who, – who, who do you recall anybody that really tried to challenge you? Like, I mean, every team they try to take run at you. But yeah. anybody in particular you remember going through the league the first time that went after you? I, I mean, in the 70s, it was <laughs> – there was a lot of them. Every every team had, you know, uh, maybe not the first year, but that was that was tough. You know, everybody tried to get hit you and try to get get you off the ice. But then in, when uh, Philly got, you know, really, you know, when they won the Stanley Cup and everything, then and really really scared. No, I mean there's a lot of lot of guys in my team too. They they hated to play against Philly because they were so rough, because we didn't have no tough guys. But then all of a sudden, after a couple of uh, games or a couple of years, then we got Tiger and a few other guys. Then we had some more, like, you know, toughness. So then that was so much easier for us. Well, now what about, okay, so let's keep on with that Philly theme. 
couple of those playoff battles with you guys. Uh-huh. I, I recall one moment, I, I think probably defining moment for you, I, I think watching you play anyway back in those days, the night that you got jumped by, sucker punched and jumped by Mel Bridgman at the playoffs, and the yep. series was pretty rough. There was the battle in the penalty box, you know, Roy McMurtry report, the police charges, all that stuff. And it was just, you know, it was the way the Flyers were playing at the time, which was setting hockey back. But that's another whole story. But the following game, you scored a goal, a very emotional goal mm-hmm. against them. And you, like, you danced down the boards. like, And I think that was a defining moment for you. I don't know if you feel the same way, but we're, all of a sudden the fans, they were totally bought into you, that you showed up, you got beat up by those the guys, like the thugs and the assassins, and you showed up the next game and scored a big goal and didn't quit. Well, that's true. I mean, I, either I was stupid or, or, or I don't know, but I never, <laughs> never, never, I, don't, I didn't really think of it. Like, you know, I knew they were after me. And of course, you know, after a couple of years when I was more offensive and was much better, they really tried, I knew that. They tried to get me out. They tried to, you know, so I always say, they tried to kill me. You know, I knew that, you know, when those guys tried to, to uh, when, when they shut the puck in, when, when they are Schultz and the, the, the hound dog or whatever they're called, you, I knew they were not going to, like, skate in with the puck. They shot it in my corner, and they weren't going to fucking kill me in there. So yeah. I sort of jumped on the puck a little earlier. I sort of, I could see that, you know. So I jumped in, they got the puck, and, and then pass it out. And then all of a sudden, you know, when you forecheck, you come in maybe one on one side, one on the other side. No, no, no. There was three guys coming right in my corner. But I passed it up, and then I up with my stick and tried to sort of protect myself. But then we had three on two instead, so I knew that. Yeah, and do you remember that uh, goal you scored that I talked about? Oh, yeah. No, that was really bad. And that was a little bit what me and Daryl, we had sort of in practice, you know, sometimes I'd pass it up to him and I'd follow the play, and he went, you know, just a little, he did a little turn, and then he looked up, and I went right in the middle of the defenseman and went in. I, we, that was sort of a play we had from before. So I, I was all alone with uh, Perron, and uh, luckily I scored. <laughs> no, that was, I mean, I think that, I think that was a moment. Any fan from that era, I think, would point at that as probably that pivotal moment in your mm-hmm. career in Toronto that just sort of embraced you with the fair. The fans just totally embraced you. And I mean, I don't know, Rick, did you ever, do you remember that goal? Uh, no. You didn't I, I was probably, he was too young though. I think I was probably you too young. You're only a kid. Well, no, I was playing. I was probably playing junior then, so I, I was, you know, 17 or so. But, uh, but playing with Boria for seven years, like I, I don't think people realize how tough he was. Like, you know, I mean, and big and strong, and I mean, I didn't see him take shit from anybody. He got a hit. That was fine. He just, kept, you know, kept playing and. I think people don't realize, and I don't mean the toughness in fighting, but how tough Boria was to be able to go through those two decades, the 70s and 80s, which was, you know, they, those two decades were, were fighting, high-sticking, spearing, whatever the heck you wanted to do, and he got away with it. And he got through that because I, I think he was a, a lot tougher than people give him credit for and, uh, and stronger that people give me credit for. And the one thing I always, people ask me a lot of questions and they always talk about Boria's offense and, and how many points he had and everything. But I, I don't remember too many defensemen that were as good defensively as Boria, blocking shots. And I remember in practice, he used to piss me off all the time. I'd be going down the right side, I'd have a step on him. And then he'd reach in between my stick and my body give it a low flick and the puck would go into the corner. And then I would just turn and like, you asshole. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> it was so frustrating, but he was so good at it that, you know, when, when you get in the game, he'd do the same thing. And it was, it was wonderful to see. Now, Boria, you're t- like going through the league uh, after a couple of times through, what, was there any surprises that you found? Like was the league, better than you thought, as you expected, and were the players, you know, as you thought they'd be, or did, were you, did somebody really stand out and surprise you? There, What were your thoughts going through the league the first couple of times? Uh, I mean, 
I, you know, like like we talked about before, 72, I played the Canadians. And I, yeah. I think I've seen some games before that, but I, it was just like, you know, some, some old games. But I, I knew that was the top gunners, you know, like we came over, Canadian yeah. team, the top of national hockey, and we could, like our national could handle them, those guys. It was really, really, you know, there was, I think it was a tie game when we played that game. So then I knew, like, they were not... So they were good, but they were not best. So, so I knew like we could handle it. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I assume that. I mean, you'd have to, ha you have to have that thought in your mind to be, be successful in sports. And uh, that brings me to you and I met at one of the unveilings. And we spoke, and you told me about Inga Hammerstrom. You always suggested that he was probably the best of all you guys from that period. But his timing, if he'd come into the league today, I think you told me. He would be a superstar. The timing of him coming to the league just wasn't the same. Two things I want to ask you. First off, follow up on that. And secondly, Harold Ballard with that, you know, the bombastic owner that we've talked about, made that famous quote about the eggs in the corner and, you know, coming out with no eggs broken. How emotionally or psychologically emotional was that for Inga? And did that have some impact on you too? Well, I mean, I... It that was pretty stupid to say that in the paper. I mean, Harold, you know, sometimes Harold didn't even think. Like, you know, he said some stupid things. You know, Harold was a nice man when you knew him. He was fantastic to me. But but he said some stupid things. And I I didn't, like, you know, I didn't really care so much about it. But I know I know Inge really, that hurt Inge. Because, you know, Inge with his skating ability and sk playing hockey, he really played well for Toronto Maple Leafs. But of course, he wasn't the guy who, who going in the corner and try to, you know, like, you know, hit a guy and kill him or something like that, you know, or hit back. Because, you know, I was brought up like in a different way. So I, I didn't care if somebody, would, I, I could hit back and whatever. I didn't care who it was. But Inge was not that way. And I, of course, like you said, Inge, if you would be in a, like in the, say, by maybe 80, maybe 90s. I mean, he would be a superstar because with his skating ability and shooting and everything, he was really good. Uh, I mean, I th the other thing too, I guess, is, I mean, just we're all on that top get of how tough it is. We've touched on the playoffs. When you went into the playoffs um, for the first time, the intensity level rises to a level that people just, it's, it's unexplainable to people unless you actually experience it. Your first time going through, did you actually sense that or did the players warn you that the intensity level would increase volumes when you started playing for real in the playoffs. Oh yeah, I mean, it's intense. You could see, you could see it in the in the dressing room. Everybody was just going like you know more crazy, and of course on the ice it was the same thing. You know, everybody sort of uh, you gave it more than ever. You know, in every game. But of course you have a you always you know got to play your game. Not naturally, you can't go all over the limit, but. But of course, it was something you're going, you were going extra somehow. Unless you have Red Kelly with the pyramid power, and then that uh, would solve everything, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> they gave a lot of power. Uh, well, that was a fun thing too. I couldn't, you know, for, from the beginning. You understand what he was trying to do. I think he mentally tried to sort of get you a little stronger and, and better. You know, it, it works mentally, not not. You know, yeah, we put, exactly. we put the sticks in the in the inside that and everything like that and uh, and i you know for me i said well if that's gonna help me fine i mean i did it too like you know it, it can't hurt you anyway so you know but then he had a, he had a pyramid in, under the under bench too so hopefully in there somewhere as, as i mean i don't know did you do any uh, crazy things like that rick any rituals for you guys hockey players are superstitious as we all know uh, what about some of the crazy things your teams have done over the years or anything uh, no, not really. I mean, we, uh, I wasn't a real superstitious guy. I, I'm pretty sure I put my equipment on the same way every single time. I don't think it was on purpose. I think it was just habit that I put my whatever left skate on first and would then right skate, whatever it is. But, um, I guess you probably could call it superstitious, but I think it was more of just habit. But I would always put my, I'd take my stick the same way all the time and I would put it in a certain spot uh, 
just outside the dressing room before we would go out to play. So there was, yeah, there was a few things like that that I did and, and a few things before the game, I would always tap the post and, and in the warm up, I would always take a bunch of pucks around the net and I'd always, you know, go upstairs with them to make sure that if I ever got that situation in the game that I was going to get it over the goalie. So yeah, there was a few things that I did, but uh, you know, it's not something that you, well, those things I did on purpose, I did, you know, purposely, but some of the things were, were just habit. Some were superstitious. Well, you know, hey, listen, I can tell you guys, I play beer league hockey now, and uh, if you sit in one guy's spot, you're dead. You know, they'll catch you off the team. If you're <laughs> beer league hockey, you can't sit in the guy's spot. Now, Borean, uh, speak to us a little bit about your thoughts on Roger Nielsen when you played for him. Well, Roger, Roger was really, uh, he was a European uh, style of, of coaching. He was really, when he came in, he, there was sort of like, uh, what I came from, that, that's how he, he, he looked at the videos and everything. And he had a lot, a lot of great ideas. I really liked him. He was really, really good. I, and I couldn't believe they really gave him the hat. I mean, uh, I, I liked him. I, I loved him, really. He was really good. Well, I mean, in the stu you talk about the stupid things of Ballard when he wanted to put the bag over his head for coming yeah. back to the, that just. No, but that was just stupid things. I can't believe, like, you know what? Yeah. I, 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 we couldn't believe it either. Like, when I said, what the hell is going on? And, like, you know, <laughs> we, like, we were confused. You're like, you know, so crazy. You know, you can't believe it. So, like, you know. This is the NHL. Oh, that... Remember, it's supposed to be the NHL, and you got a clown show going on here with the Oval. <laughs> yeah, we try to play uh, hockey, well, you know, and then doing crazy things. And, 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 uh, but it was a good laugh well, after. That was a big, that was. Like crazy. That was the beginning of the end, so to speak, because Roger was a fantastic coach. Mm -hmm. And then after Roger, I mean, well, you were there through it all too, but uh, you had Floyd, you had Joe Crozier, you had Mike Nicklock, you had Dan mm -hmm. Maloney, you had John Brophy. Like, I mean, after Roger Nielsen, we had, we never had a coach that had systems. We never had a coach, I don't think, that looked at a video unless it was showing us how bad we were on any given night. And I, I think that was the most frustrating thing for me anyway, when I came to Toronto, was the fact that, you know, I had heard so much about Roger and how he was ahead of his time. And now all of a sudden we went back in time and with all the coaches that we had. So that was a frustrating time for me. It must have been for you too, Corey. Oh yeah. No, but I agree hundred percent because Roger had so many good ideas, like in a really, fun ideas to, to, to win the hockey games. And I agree with the other coaches. I mean, like you said, that we never saw a video game or a show or like, you know, you should do this and that. It was just like, you know, screaming and uh, throwing stuff sometimes, you know, I, well, I talk about rope, you know, like coming in the dressing room and destroying the whole dressing room. And the trainers were going crazy, you know, you know everything down, you know, and then he went out. That was that was our tactic, you know, to play hockey. You know, well, you know, so. while we're going through all these Hall of Famers as coaches now, what about when Punch came back? Like, did you like what was your experience with Punch for the short time you were working for him, so to speak? Uh, you talk, you asking me? Yeah, Punch. Uh, see, I didn't know too much about him, you know, before that. I and mean, of course, you know, he was uh, well, he was the one who they gave him like the Stanley Cup '67. So of yeah. course you thought he was good, but he was really, you know, I don't know. He brought so many Buffalo players coming into our team and, and it was so, uh, it happened so many things in like outside the dressing room and inside the dressing room. I think we had more TV guys and, and, and newspaper guys there because I always won every day something happened. And then we came in there and every time you come in the rest, okay, what's what's going on today? Not not like not, that was not how you think about the are we gonna play hockey? No. What what happened today? So yeah, I mean, it was like the Barnum and Bailey it was like the Barnum and yeah. Bailey circus there on a daily basis. You got Harold would I mean, Harold's goal was to be the headlines in the sports on every newspaper every day. And he pretty much accomplished it by saying the stupidest things that, that he could possibly say or do. And Bory is right. It was like you came in every day and it wasn't about, okay, how, what are we going to do today? How's practice? 
how are we going to prepare for the game or whatever it might be. It was, oh, well, what the hell happened today? You know, and that's the way it was for for my whole seven years anyway. Now, Boria, at, at any point during before Imlac and that, when the WHA was in existence, no. did you ever consider playing in the league? Did your frustrations with the Leafs get to the point where maybe I should look at that or maybe they were offering you monetarily a lot more money? No way. No, no way. Because you know what? At Toronto Maple Leafs treated me so good and I love to play for Toronto Maple Leafs, believe me. And, and you know, play at the Garden said, I'm so happy to, you know, I had the chance to do that and play 16 years for Toronto, you know, just even that. But it, the guys, you know, Jim Gregory, John McLemore, all the guys, they really treated us good. You know, I, I really, for me, it was just like, you know, fantastic time. I never wanted to be traded. I can't say the same thing about Jerry Boria, but because no. he didn't treat me the same way he treated you, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, Boria, 1970. Jerry, like, you know, I, I know he, he had, had me under his arm, so I know he treated me so good, you know, and, and I know. I don't know. I didn't. I, I didn't know everything. He, what he did to you and somebody else. But I mean, he. But for to me, he was really good. So I, I can't say so much more. Now, Boria, nineteen. Getting. Oh, sorry, Rick. Go ahead. Finish. Sorry. Okay. I, I wanted to ask you, and I, this is something that I've wondered for so long. But because it, Harold Ballard came to me in, in when I was twenty-two years old, and he didn't ask me. But he, he just told me, you're the captain. Yeah. And my thought was, okay, if I say no, he's going to trade me. And I don't want to be traded. I love it here in Toronto. I want to stay here. Did he ask you to be captain? Because I know that Matt's called you when he was asked, and you told him not to turn it down. Were you ever asked to be captain when Daryl left? If they ask, if they ask me to be a captain, yes, yeah, yeah. After Daryl left, yeah, they did. They did. Uh, uh, not the first year, but after. I don't know if it was the same year or the year after. He wanted me to be a captain, and they asked me actually twice. One one year, and I said no, because they, I think my English. I didn't want to be a, like you know out and have like speeches and all that stuff. A little bit like that, but also. I knew what, what uh, Daryl went through before he left. And uh, I, I didn't want to go through that. I want to play hockey and not be like in between the management and the players. I wanted to be with, with the players. That's what I like. I love to play with the guys and play with, you know, and be with the guys. So I didn't want to be some, somebody's, you know, who was between everybody. So that's why I told, they, they had meetings with me and Harold said, you gotta be the captain. And I said, no, I don't wanna be the captain. So we, I don't know if we, we didn't have a captain for two, three years, right? So mm -hmm. uh, we had three A's instead. So, and, and I was the captain anyway. So I, I was sort of holding on to it anyway. So that was not a big deal really, but I didn't wanna be, go through what Daryl did. And I think that, that you said yes, that you, said yes to the captain, that was good because Toronto may be a captain of Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, I, if I look back, I should say yes, of course. But, you know, there happened too much under, under that time, those two, three years when before Daryl left. I mean, there was no fun time, you know, not for, La for Lanny there and everybody who sort of got traded because punch. I mean, uh, and that has well, nothing. My, yeah, in my case, I, like I was 22 years old, I knew I wasn't ready to take over as a captain at that point. But mm -hmm. like I said, I'm pretty darn sure that if I had told Harold no, that I, he might have traded me. And yeah. that was something that I, at that point in my career, I certainly didn't want to get traded again. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did say yes, even though I, I knew that I wasn't really prepared for it at that time. But I had a lot of help from you and some of the other guys. And I think a couple of years later, then I was ready. And, uh, you know, so uh, thankfully I had the help of yourself and Ronnie Ellis and guys like that uh, to help me through it because I don't think I was ready at 22, but I don't, I didn't think I had much choice at that time. 
uh, when the owner comes to you and says, you're the captain. Like, <laughs> okay, you know. <laughs> and it, you know what? And it's hard. Like, you know, it, it is Toronto. I always say Toronto is mecca of hockey. That's what I say. And, you know, yeah. it's not easy to be a captain in, in Toronto because they expect so much from a captain and, of course, from the team and from the guys. And you guys are supposed to play hockey and be good. And you're supposed to be a captain. Then you got to really take care of everybody. And it's, it's a big job. And, yeah, hey, Ricky, you did a good job. You know, And just to say, yes, you did the right thing. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, I don't think you heard the second part of Squid's question. Did uh, The story goes that Matt Sundin called you when he was asked to be captain and you told him, take it. Don't, you'll regret it later if you don't. Is that a true story? That's a true story, yes. And so what did you tell you? just told him, take it. You don't... No, yeah, because he said, you know, they asked me to be a captain and I just said, listen, I told him the story that, you know, they asked me to be a captain and and I said no, but I, you know, afterwards, of course, now I should have said yes because I, you know, I should have done it because be a captain for Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, that's that's really big, and and uh, that's I mean, it's not like you know <laughs> the whole thing, but it, that would be nice if I'd done it. But that's what I'm saying to Squid. Like you, you said yes, that was the right thing. I know it was hard for you to do it at that at the time because you were 22. I mean, that was that was really good for you, uh, for you to do that. But it was. It was a big honor. Uh, it still is today uh, to be the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He, he played with the Maple Leafs to start with is an honor to me, anyway. And but to be the captain of that team and, and wear that C on your on your sweater to me was was probably the biggest honor that that I could ever have. Yeah. So for you. Um... You know, you guys, as we've discovered here again today, and everybody from that era knows, you guys are a very close-knit team coming out of the 70s. Now, in 79, as the story goes, um, you know, Hedberg and Nielsen both wanted to come and play for the Maple Leafs when the WHA was breaking up, but Uncle Hal said he couldn't afford them, so off they went and ended up playing for the Rangers. And with all the other things going on around the hockey club, uh, then Bunch brought in and bringing back all those other guys and all the disheval going on with Sittler and all that stuff. Then all of a sudden they make a trade for this guy whose face is on the screen here with us, along with Bill Gerlego. Bill fought through that whole process. And then when these two kids arrived, it got traded for a couple of pretty popular players too. Uh, now, of course, I mean, that, that, I mean, I didn't know Billy and, and uh, we played against each other, of course, but I can't remember when I played against them. But I mean, oh, always when somebody got traded to your team, I mean, I, I always, you know, I didn't feel sorry for them, but I mean, I, I knew it was hard. It was not easy to go and leave your, your best, you know, buddies from your team and then come to another team. And then you got to be, I knew Tiger went away, but he was one of my best friends and still is. But of course, but I, you know what hockey is, when you get traded, you're traded. You can't do nothing about it because I saw man, so many guys got traded and you can't do nothing about it. So when when uh, when uh, Rick and, and, and Billy comes, you know, you they were welcome like crazy. I mean, I when I, I knew they were going to help us, and that they, I wanted them to come in and feel the best. You know, you came to the best team and and, and uh, come here. You're you're so welcome. Now the first part of my call was on Hedberg and Nielsen, and they wanted to join the Leafs in '79. Uh -huh. Was that a true story? I mean, that's the rumor that's out there. I had, you know what? I never heard of that. Not from, from I have somebody said now for like maybe, maybe for a few years back, but never heard of that at that time that they were coming here. Jerry McInerney told us that story. And, oh, uh, really? I didn't know that. And, and, and Harold couldn't afford them. <laughs> wow, well, that's too bad. Well, no, he didn't want to afford them. He probably <laughs> didn't want to afford them. <laughs> he could afford them, he just didn't want to pay them. <laughs> yeah, probably. They, but you know what? They didn't want to have another Swede there. That, that's why they were they were enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a I got a, a trick question here for both of you guys. So now you guys sat beside each other for seven years in the dressing room. Okay. Well, Rick sat between you and Ronnie Ellis, I believe. Um, for you, tell us something about Squid that people may not know, like a, a little story about him. And Rick, you do the same about Boria. Well. <laughs> Well, you know why they call him Squid, right? Yes. 
<laughs> okay, I won't tell them this, that story. Though. That's a good one. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, now Ricky, you know, you could see when he came in, you know, he, he is a goal scorer, you know. But the only thing I tried, and you know, after a while, when you could see, you know, how good he was, like he excellent shot and everything. I want to try it. I said, Wait, "Can I try your stick?" And I got them Titan stick. That was heavier than fine, fine wood. That was. You know, I couldn't believe he could play with a stick like that. It was no balance, nothing. But he could score goals. Believe me. <laughs> okay, your turn, there, Squid. Well, the only thing I remember is coming in. And after, I don't know, let's say a month or, or, or so of being there. So I got Boria on my right side and I got Ronnie Ellis on my left side. And of course, Ronnie was a born gay Christian at the time. Although he never preached it to you or anything like that. He was very, Ronnie was one of the, the most gentlemanly persons I've ever met. But anyway, I'm sitting there and, and I, I just remember thinking one day, I said, and Borea, Borea was a good part here. And uh, so I said, it feels like I got the devil on this side and I got the angel on this side. And I said, which way do I go? Like the cartoons. And I go, which way do I go? So I went a little bit more to the right side, to the, to the devil's side, and uh, as I called it, which was really wasn't the devil, but um, and more the partying side. And, uh, uh, but... I couldn't help it because this guy here was was like so good and and at everything and including partying and I said you know I want to be with this guy <laughs> all right so Boria uh, just uh, going back a little bit uh, the 1976 Canada Cup and you're playing for Sweden yep. and I was at this game actually uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens the ovation you got before that start of that game when they introduced you do you remember, Alain, what was going through your mind standing on the blue line that night? Well, uh, you know what? First was, the first game was actually with USA, right? And I got the standing ovation. I, I had no clue at all. I, you know, a little bit, you know, I knew like, uh, you know, Toronto, like they were so, uh, you know, Canadians, Americans. So I thought they like maybe, maybe boo me. And I had something like that. I don't know. Now I hear, here I come in with, a, I have a Swedish sweater on and not uh, sort of a Toronto police sweater yeah. on. So. And all of a sudden, you know, they started to, and I like they started to clap their hands and all the stuff when I, when I came up from the bench. And then when I stand there, I said, oh my God. And then all of a sudden they're standing up. And I couldn't believe, like they never st like stopped either. So I started to turn around a little bit and then and sort of, I, I couldn't understand what they were doing. But that was amazing. Now afterwards, you know, I understood, you know, they really, you know, somehow they really liked me, you know, because, you know, I've done something good there. You know, that's what they wanted to show me. And I really, I was really appreciate that. But on the other hand, what I forgot that when I played Canada, yeah. they did the same thing. Yes. And that game was, that was worse because uh, Daryl and Lanny was playing in the other side, and I I know I don't know if they got a standing ovation, but I got a standing ovation, and more than like you know those guys who, who were Canadians and Canada is Canada, you know, for you know the best team they have the, in in Canada. Th that was that was strange a little bit. <laughs> well, some of the team Canada players were pissed because they said, "Why are they giving this guy a standing ovation? Should be cheering for us. We're representing your country, and you're cheering for the opposition." See, that's <laughs> why that, you know, a little bit like that. That's what I felt. I felt, you know, like, you know, what, what the hell are they doing? They're not supposed to share up the other guys, not me. <laughs> but it was nice. Oh, you know, it's so nice that they did that to me. Amazing. Yeah, well, you deserved it at the time. You were playing phenomenally. Um, now, inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 96. Uh, your yeah. first Swedish player to go into the hall. And in mm -hmm. 98, you're elected to the top 100 players of all time. I mean, your retirement of your sweater. Has this all sunk on in you, the type of career that you've had? Uh, it's amazing. I, you, know, I, you know, when I got into the Hockey Hall of Fame, when they called me, that they, I cried afterwards because I think... It's so many memories, you know, when you go through, like, you know, I played 16 or 17 years in National Hockey League. And, I, and then I suppose, because, you know, you heard so much about it. You were down there, you, you, you talked to the guys, the older guys, and the, the guys who were in the Hall of Fame, and you knew 
I knew that was so important. It was the best you can ever get when, when you quit hockey. And I'm, and I'm supposed to be there, a Swedish guy coming from the north part of Sweden from nowhere. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to be in the Hall of Fame. That was amazing. That was so big. Now, do you ever sit back and reflect that that, you know, day back in 73, you fly across from Sweden to Canada and start playing in the National Hockey League. And you look around the league and it's you and Inga and nobody else, really. And now today, how the game has expanded and it's, as we said earlier in the, on this call, you know, you could have five or six Swedes, a couple of Americans, a couple of Ger like, like everywhere from around the world. Are, are you amazed at how the game has grown? And did you real? Did you ever reflect back on the impact you've had or contribution you made by you coming over and having the success you did? Well, it, say for ten years ago, maybe when somebody said that, you know, I, I didn't really. I, I said no. I mean, of course, I did something, but I mean, it was no big deal. But today, I understood. I've been understanding more that I, I must have done something uh, right. You know, some impact on a lot of people because. You know, like Jerry said, that he started the whole thing when he went over there because there was no scouts over there. And he was the first scout over there, and then he came back, and then all of a sudden there was, you know, 100 scouts over there in Sweden and, and, and Europe to try to get uh, uh, hockey players. Yeah, and now, um, I mean, again, if you take a, it's it's one of those things, if you think about it this way, let's take the sort of opposite approach. Like 1972, the Summit Series changed the game of hockey forever. Everybody's in agreement with that. But think about this. What if Canada had lost? Would the game have changed the same way? And uh -huh. I say the same thing to you when you came over a year later. What if you hadn't been successful? Like what would have happened? Just think about how the course of history may have changed with those two instances uh -huh. moving forward. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, you know, I must have showed something, you know, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that I agree with you. Somehow, somehow if I wouldn't done really bad on the Inga, then, then probably the scout wouldn't go over. So, uh, but I, th I think maybe they saw, saw something what we did. We did something right. Yes, you certainly did. So we're getting near the end here. We've got now, Squid, anything you want to throw at uh, Bory before we wrap this up? No, I, uh, you know what? I just want to say that it was a pleasure playing with him uh, for seven years. And, and I got a picture of my, the first year that I scored my 50th goal. He's in the picture on the point on the power play and uh it was just a real treat playing with him for seven years and watching what he could do and and uh like i said i i don't think people realize how how tough he was and how good he was defensively i don't think people give him enough credit for that and especially the toughest toughest part of it because i've seen this guy block shots get hit just keep playing like i mean it's just uh to me, it was remarkable to, to watch him go through that and uh, continue to, to keep on going. And then that horrible night in Detroit, yep. when, uh, you had your face cut. And, uh, you know, I think he was playing within less than a week. And, uh, you know, like that shows how tough he was to come back and play after that in such a short period of time. Now, uh, Bory, I, I, the other day I had a chat with... Yeah, I, I have to say something too, oh, Squid. Uh, yeah. Rick, uh, you know, same time, you know, like, you know, you're a great teammate and me, we had such a good time, you know, on the ice and off the ice. I mean, I, I will never forget you and, and Billy and everybody, you know, we had so, so fun. I mean, believe me, that was, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> so many stories we have in, in our mind. And I know when we, I mean, when I get a little older, when I'm sitting, you know, in my, uh, what would you call that? No, my wheelchair, whatever, yeah, yeah. Not a wheelchair. <laughs> I'm going to start laughing and laughing the whole time. And uh, I know everybody's going to ask, what, why is he sitting there laughing? About? <laughs> well, I, I, gotta well, give I you, have to agree with you on that. Hey, I'll give you this one here. I talked to Jimmy Devilano the other day, Boria. And uh, he said, I know he signed you your last year. You tried uh, to play there. But he said to me, he said, you know, they, they really respected you as a player, but he also liked the fact that he was going to give a dig to Toronto by taking their best player. <laughs> he said that? Yeah, Jimmy said that. He always takes digs at the Toronto Maple Leafs against me. So oh, he gave me a shot. Oh. <laughs> so okay. now um, uh, talk about quickly your, your, your life after hockey. You've got some business ventures, maybe like to tell us about that. Yeah, well, my, my own brand, which called Salming and uh, 
we, we started with selling underwear in, in uh, 1991. And now we have so much, we have perfumes, we have, uh, we have running, you know, running all the equipment from top, uh, top to the bottom. And uh, we have running shoes, we got uh, indoors with the same thing for handball, for a floor ball, we got uh, for squash, we got squash rackets, we got, we got all kinds of stuff. And so uh, it's really doing well. We're all, all across, uh, we're in uh, North America too, and we have agents in Toronto. So we're doing really well across uh, the world. Well, that's fantastic. That's great to okay, hear. Okay, so. Oh, thanks. Mike, on his product. Yeah. I remember when he started the underwear mm -hmm. and I said, can you send me some for Joyce, for my wife? And uh, whatever, the bras and the panties and all that kind of stuff. And sure enough, he sent them over and uh, she said it was the most comfortable underwear she had ever worn. And uh, she said that, she still says that to this day. And uh, so man, I might have to get you to hook her up again, boy. Yeah, but some. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, Quinn, you know, they were sexy too, right? Weren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah, they were, they were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you liked them too, I know that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> hey, boy, he's blushing. Yeah, I know that. I know that. That's what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, now listen, you're going to get to Toronto when you're clear at some point? Yeah, well, we're planning actually going over to, to Hall of Fame weekend. If we, I don't know what's going on. You know, we, we have to wait and see, you know, with the corona and everything. So, but we're definitely going to go over, me and my wife. Well, when you come into Toronto, Squid and I owe you a lunch. So, well. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that would be nice. I would love to do that. And we'll set that up for sure. Hopefully, you're going to be here that weekend. Well, yes. Boya, it's been a it's been a pleasure, uh, an honor, just a terrific, terrific discussion. We got our technical difficulties out of the way. <laughs> yeah, Great to see you here. I know uh, I know all our viewers and our listeners are going to love this. And uh, listen, great talking to you, and thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Glenn. Boya, thank you very much. It was a, it was a blast. <laughs>